Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored we get to interview Pano Canales, the founding trustee of UATX. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's going great. I'm here in Texas. It's uh, starting to cool down a little bit. Didn't get over 90 this week. Pretty happy. <laughs> awesome. Well, let me uh, read a brief bio. And probably it does not do him justice, but Pano Canales is a founding trustee of UATX, a nonprofit dedicated to founding a university, which is the subject of today's conversation. Previously, he served as the president of St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Pano, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you for having me. What a great pleasure to be here. And I don't know what part of Texas you're in, but my part of Texas is pretty darn hot these days. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm three hours north of you, so it does make a difference. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm in Northern California, Pano, in the wine country, uh, so it's a little bit milder here. Um, but uh, there's so many questions I have for you. I mean, I know St. John's is a really unique college and you were president of it, but since we have you for a limited time, really want to focus on what you're building, the University of Austin. And can you just level set? I mean, Ed and I talk about this all the time, but where did this idea come from and how did you get involved in it? Um, it's an excellent question. I mean, the idea, it, <laughs> it hasn't been one that's been percolating for very long, at least this specific idea of opening this university at this time and this location. Really, the, the seed was planted about a year ago, um, last spring. Um, the initiating moment for me was a Zoom call with Barry Weiss. Uh, Barry and I were on a call, just the two of us, and she had called me specifically to talk about a friend of ours, Joshua Katz uh, at Princeton University, classicist who was, um, you know, getting fed through the wood chipper there um, because he had said a few things that were impolitic. And, um, and Barry was angry uh, that universities were treating a fellow like this who's a really wonderful person and an accomplished scholar in the way they were treating him. And so, um, so we were talking about this. We we're talking about the state of American universities, the, the, um, the dangers of, of um, allowing universities to continue in the direction that they're moving. And she just looked at me across the Zoom call and she's like, you know, we've tried so many things that change American University from within. Pano, we should start a new university. And I said, that's a great idea. I love that idea. Let's, you know, great idea. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm on board. I'll, I'll support that. She said, no, no, no. Said, you, you need to be the president of, of this new university. And I thought, um, hang on a minute, Barry. I have a job. Uh, which I quite like. I have a family, uh, and uh, you know this is a big thing we're talking about here. And then she kind of looked me straight in the eye. And this is this is why Barry Weiss is so effective. You know, if you ever meet Barry in person, she's you know a petite, you know mid late thirties young woman, 
um, not the person you'd pick out of a lineup to, you know, to be like a, I don't know, mafia boss or something like that. But when she looks you square in the eye and she tells it like it is, she has kind of a, I don't know, force of moral authority that moves people. I think this is why she's been so successful. And she looked at me and she said, Connor, you have to do this because this is all your fault. I'm like, my fault? Higher education is my fault? How is it my fault? Like, I thought, but aren't I one of the good guys? You know, and, and she said, no. I said, you're a college president. You've made your whole career in higher education. You know what the problems are. If people like you don't step up, if you don't do something, who's going to do it? Who are we waiting for? And I thought, um, I thought that, I mean, that made sense. <laughs> I said, Barry, that makes sense to me. But, <laughs> you know, building a university, this hasn't been done in a century. You know, great, you know, we haven't seen great American universities built in over a century. And it costs a lot of money and it's complicated and accreditation. And, uh, you know, and, I, and, and I'm like, I don't know. And I said, you know, let's start with just the money issue, Barry. This is going to cost a lot of money. I said, so I thought I would, I thought I had it. So I, I said, Barry, I'll make you a deal. Go find one of those tech billionaire guys in, you know, Silicon Valley and, and get some support in that. And then, uh, and then we'll talk. So got off the call within two weeks, I get a call from Joe Lonsdale. Uh, one of those tech billionaire guys, because Barry Weiss has a, you know, Illuminati level Rolodex. And, uh, and, you know, next thing you know, Joe said, I hear you want to start a new university. I said, that's not exactly what I said, but let's talk. I flew down to Austin. And, um, you know, before I knew it, the conversation included Neil Ferguson and Arthur Brooks and Heather Hang and Joe and Barry and I. And I looked around and I said, you know, we have, um, you know, we have like, the Avengers here, right? I have these people who are like, you know, the Avengers of public intellectuals, people who are earnest, sincere. We have, um, you know, some degree of support to start off with financially. And I thought this is, this is, this can happen if we just put our shoulders into it and make it happen. And so that was the kind of origin story of where we are. And that was, believe it or not, of May uh, 2021. I know May 26 exactly when we all got together it was my wife's birthday. I got in trouble for not being there, so I remember <laughs> the day. Um, and by July 1st, I had moved to Austin, Texas, to start a university. Wow, that, that that's so exciting. I mean, you know, if you're on the free market side of things, you always hear when you have complaints about whatever it is a the you know big tech censoring people or whatever or the way universities have gone off the rails, you always hear, well, go build your own. And you guys are, you guys are actually doing it. I mean, Harvard's been around since what, 1636. They've got a bit of a head start on you. How's it feel to go, you know, to go head to head against the status quo? Oh, it feels great. I mean, look, I think I think most of the problems we have in higher education today, um, whether they're the sort of financial model breaking down, whether problems of free speech and um, you know, any uh, curricular decay, I think stem from um, a lack of competition in higher education. Uh, you know, it is radically difficult to start new institutions, not just because of the cost but because of the accreditation process, because of regulations and all that. And, and um, you know, every time a family worries about the price of higher education, that price would drop if it was easier for new institutions to be founded. Just what competition would, um, 
would create a you know options within the system that would bring the cost of higher education down. So it feels great just punching through all that. It feels great saying like, well, no, we are going to do this. We're starting a university. Um, it's happening. We're going to get it done. And then once we get it done, it means others are going to follow in our wake. You know, we're going to be the snowplow. Uh, you know, I'm often asked, you know, what success would look like for the University of Austin after a decade or two. And I say success for me is when we have dozens of competitors who are pushing us to be even better. Uh, schools of all sorts and different models, um, different approaches that have sort of risen up in the, the wake we leave behind us. To me, that's success because that's when we start to see the dial in higher education move. That's beautiful. I love it. You, I heard you on a podcast and you said the purpose of a university is the fearless pursuit of the truth, not the acquisition of the truth, but the pursuit of it. How will you, how will the university of Austin be different in, in uh, that, well, in that pursuit? I mean, first of all, setting that as the North star of the institution to begin with, you know, that, that, the, the, the pursuit of truth is, in fact, the purpose of higher education. I mean, there's a reason we call it higher education, right? And that is that we should be aiming for what's higher. We should be aiming for what's transcendent um, and aiming for, you know, achieving, you know, acquiring absolute truth, acquiring the transcendent, you know, that may be beyond the capacity of most, if not all humans, but you have to have directionality. You have to know what it is that you're aiming for. And if you orient an institution around that, around the pursuit of truth, um, you're not going to let much get in your way. You are going to ensure that you have uh, what I call a kind of maximalist version of open inquiry, as many possible voices at the table uh, exploring the great human question, because we learn in concert. You know, I mean, all of us as individuals, um, you know, we're, we, we actually know very little about the world. You know, and, and what we know, we kind of half know, and most of the time we're wrong. The only way we advance human knowledge is by joining together with other people and testing what it is that we think we know and testing it against other ideas, allowing our ideas to be, um, to be brought forward in a kind of um, open uh, uh, way. I mean, I, I often say that, you know, as an institution, we should be a place where we have strong convictions lightly held um and i think if you do that if you create an atmosphere where the 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 end point is to increase the sum total of human i wouldn't even say maybe knowledge human wisdom because wisdom and knowledge aren't the exact same thing you know wisdom is uh wisdom is learning what's better or worse in the world knowledge can often be quantifiable learning how to measure things or you know, how, how to make a bridge stand up. You know, we want to be able to help human beings understand what's better or worse in the course of their own lives and sort of communally as a society and as a world. So, you know, you set that you set that North Star up there and then you make sure that everything about your institution is pointing in that direction. That's what you that's what you assess against. So for example, we had last spring what we called the first principle summit. So we're building this institution from the ground up. And we're creating everything. We're creating, you know, the bylaws, the governance structure, the curriculum, the campus itself, everything. And we want to make sure that as we're doing this, um, we keep aiming for that, that North Star, keep aiming in the direction of our first principles. 
So we brought in a whole bunch of outsiders, professors, public intellectuals. We gathered together dozens of them for a weekend here in Austin. And we said, okay, how do you create a new institution that adheres over time to the principles of open inquiry, freedom of conscience, civil discourse, without compromising those principles? So we had this very uh, robust discussion. Um, and what we realized was part of maintaining our principles over time is that we have to reconvene this group every year to ensure that we are living up to the principles. In other words, you constantly have to self-reflect on what it is that you're doing, what you have been doing, what you're aiming for, and be willing to correct. I don't know that institutions of higher learning are really oriented around self-reflection. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if they do, they're not asking themselves the right question. Right, right. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Pono, this is just great. I'm sure Ed's got a lot more questions for you. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And do check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now a word from our sponsor, one of which is Melio, an accounts payable solution that both you and your clients will love. Go to melio.com slash TSOE to get started for free. And now a word from our sponsors. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees, and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software, so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit Melio.com accountants for more information. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. 
Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Our guest today on The Soul of Enterprise is Pano Canellos, who is at the president at UATX, which is founding the University of Austin. And Pana, I wanted to ask you about a couple of different things. I believe we met briefly at a at a National Review Institute session down in, in Texas. And one of the things that you said from stage was that you had 4,000 faculty apply. <laughs> so that, that, I, I really can't, I only stutter <laughs> when well, I say that. <laughs> um... Yeah, well, I, I, it is it is humbling, and the numbers up to about five thousand now. <laughs> so these are five thousand, and and we haven't actually started hiring faculty yet because we're preparing that. We have a couple people who we've hired on faculty to help us design a curriculum, but you know, they, but we've had about five thousand faculty at other institutions reach out to us inquiring about jobs and wanting to apply, and and um, you know, it really says something about the state of higher education, that there are, you know, and these are just people who have reached out to us. There must be orders of magnitude more people who, who would find the kind of enterprise we're undertaking um, something they'd want to be a part of. And it, it just says there are a lot of people out there who are disaffected in their own institutions and who would be willing to jump to a brand new institution um, to, because they would, would feel that that's a place they'd be more at home at. And um, and the, the fact that we're talking about are, um, I mean, everything from you know, sort of new, newly minted PhDs to very, very senior faculty. In fact, we, we hired recently um, a fellow to, to lead our program and our, we call our Center for Politics, Education, Applied History, a fellow named Charles Calamaris, who held a senior endowed chair at Columbia University uh, in finance and business. I mean, this is an esteemed, you know, world-renowned economist who, um, reached out to me and said, I want to come down there and be a part of what you're doing. I want to build, I want to build your program. So I want to be part of this legacy. And so we brought Charlie down and now Charlie is hiring behind him the next and people who are as, uh, you know, as eminent as he is. We're going to have to, we're, this is, all right, I'm going to knock on wood because I want, I, I don't want this to not be true. Um, I think we're going to have the world's most exciting collection of economists before we even open our doors. The people who have raised their hand to join this enterprise and build this program here are, you know, just, you know, unbelievable. I mean, they're rock stars in their, in their field. And, uh, and that's the kind of opportunity you get when you start something new, when you, when you look at, when you look at institutions in a fresh way, and you try things that haven't been tried before in the way that you're trying them. Well, I guess the most important question, though, after that is, is what's the mascot going to be and what division are you going to play in NCAA? <laughs> uh, 
Those are excellent <laughs> questions. I, have no, I don't have an answer to either. I will say we have no intention whatsoever of doing sports. Uh, and uh, we could go into why. Maybe a chess team. Case. Maybe a chess but team. We, well, I would say the, the, the leading contender for, for a sports team right now is pickleball. Uh, that's, that's, I've been told that, that we should have a pickleball team. And so, you know, so we'll probably have that and, and mascots. I, you know, I'm, that's, we're going to leave that. We'll, maybe we'll have like, you know, a kind of contest to name the mascot of UATX or something, but yeah, no sports. <laughs> I, I, I think college sports are pretty cool. I like college sports. Um, but I also think, um, I do think that they, they, they can be one of the factors that make college, um, problematic to make it more expensive and distract from the core mission, which is the pursuit of truth. Yeah. If, if you haven't seen, highly recommended the South Park episode that spoofs the NCAA. Just put that down in your notes. <laughs> it's well worth the watch as a cautionary tale. But <laughs> I, I, I'm going to look it up right when we get off this call. I love South Park. <laughs> uh, but what, more seriously, let's talk about the new financial model. One of the other things that you said from stages this event was your your sort of, I guess, target. I wouldn't say goal is to be half of Harvard that in in terms of tuition. So talk a little bit about the financial yeah. model. Well, you know, I mean, I think realistically, um, if you look at at the financial model of higher education, and you know, everybody's aware that the the price point of higher education has risen precipitously. Now, the price that they advertise is not really the price that most people pay. We know that there's some sort of fog of war there where they tell you it's this, but you actually end up paying something else. Uh, but the cost, the actual cost of delivering an education has risen precipitously. And it's not because there's more and more money being channeled into classroom instruction. And if, if you look at the, the spending on instruction, it's remained almost flat uh, over time. So the money's being spent somewhere um, and so thinking carefully about where that money's being spent um, and trying to undo some of the, uh, the habitual um, practices that have led to spending money in that way um, is what you get to do when you start a new institution. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, the, we're building a new campus. You know, we have land and we're ready to build a new campus. 40% of the buildings on most college campuses are given over to administration, 40%. All right, I don't wanna build those buildings. It's expensive to build buildings and then to, to, to keep them up, maintain them, you know, cool them, heat them. Uh, one of the things we've learned in, over the pandemic is that um, for certain types of work, people can work very well remotely. Um, now for, for the purposes of education, we believe very strongly that, that students, especially undergraduates, need to be in person, face-to-face -face, with real teachers doing things in real time. That's how you build a community of trust that allows you to have difficult conversations and to learn together, right? But does it really matter where the person doing the financial aid packaging is? You know, the students will never see them. So, you know, one of the, you know, sort of thinking through the, the ways that universities spend money, we realize we can greatly reduce the cost of administration by um, creating a kind of remote, uh, let's call it virtual administration um, that outsources most of those activities that aren't really core, aren't central to the, the mission of the university. And every dollar you save there is a dollar that students save. So lowering the cost of, of administration is critical. 
Um, that's one of our pillars in the new financial model. The old financial model of higher education is a kind of, you know, we'll call this sort of iron triangle. And that is that you have three sources of revenue. You have tuition, philanthropy, and grants of various sorts that come in. And that this is supposed to sort of um, fund the entire enterprise. We know that those three things together can no longer keep up with the rising costs of higher education. So what we're doing is creating a different triangle that will um, move the emphasis away from those revenue sources and think more carefully about both reducing expenses and creating alternative revenue sources. So lowering administrative costs, operational costs is absolutely key to every institution that's going to survive over time. That's one of them. Uh, the other piece is diversifying revenue. Universities are great engines for, um, for, you know, for making things that matter in the world, whether they're ideas or things that have hard surfaces, whatever. How do you use your university as a place that can create value in the world and that value can then rebound back upon um, university? Universities used to do things like, you know, and, and monasteries, they would have breweries, right? Or, or vineyards or that and create things in the world and that kind of product would come back as a profit center university. What can universities produce? What kind of intellectual capital can they produce that rebounds back on um, the university? So for example, one idea we, we're playing around with right now is creating um, an opportunity for all of our graduate students to apply for startup grants the day they graduate. So we can launch them into the world to do what it, what it is that they're gonna do and invest in them, create you know, $100,000, $150,000 startup grants so that as they become successful, they're successful and then the university sees a small return on its investment back to the university, which then allows us to invest in further students. So diversifying revenue is very important. And then the last corner is aligning student incentives and rewards with university incentives and rewards. Most universities think their job is to admit students, educate them, and then, and then watch them leave on the day of commencement. We want to partner with our students over the long run. So what we're going to do is, um, in addition to offering things like grants, we're actually playing around with this idea right now. And I'm not 100% sure we're going to be able to deliver on it, so I'm, I'm asterisking it as we talk. Um, we want to guarantee our students five years of median income when they graduate. And we're looking at a financial product that will allow us to do that. Why do we want to do that? Because if institutions become responsible for the results of the education they provide for students in a very visceral way, institutions will ensure that we have optimal results. So if, if the university has to pay a price when a student fails, as they enter the world, then, uh, then the university is going to try and ensure that that doesn't happen. And so flowing back from that premise, all sorts of other things you might imagine uh, fall into place. Pano, I, I started this segment by stuttering my question through the 4,000 people who applied. For, you're now leaving me stammering by saying that what you're going to do is guarantee the education that they're, they're, that the students. That is just absolutely amazing. And hopefully you can make that work. I'm hopeful yeah. that, that you'll be able to do that. Uh, we're, wow, just, just incredible. But we are up against our, our next break. want to remind folks that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. 
Of course, show notes are available, as well as previews to upcoming shows on thesoulofenterprise.com. We do have a sponsor for our Patreon group. If you go to patreon.com slash TSOE, our sponsor there is 90minds. If you need a mind, get one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Pano Canales, and he's uh, the trustee, founding trustee of UATX, which is in the process of founding the University of Austin. And Pano, I heard you say something that really, it's such a great line, but it's very provocative. The age of the college major is ending. Yeah. Ex- uh, well, explain that. I, I, yeah, I, look, I mean, the statistics are clear. Over 70% of people working today are working in fields they did not major in in college. So the idea that you major in some discipline and that leads you to a kind of specialized career isn't true. In fact, most people change jobs, I think it's like five or six times, change careers over the course of their life. So college should be preparing people to be flexible, to to have the kind of meta skills that you need to succeed in life. and it's also problematic because if you think about the model of, of college departments and majors, you know, you have the history department or the English department or, you know, the economics department, the department model basically says, like, look, we're going to hire for faculty who are experts in a the field. They're going to have PhDs and we're going to bring them on board. And if they if they play nice, we're going to give them a job for life. Right. So how is it possible? that an institution that has as a primary goal, not its only goal, but as a primary goal, the preparation of young people for professional success for the rest of their life is staffed by people who never leave a university, 
right? How is that possible? And yet that's what you have when you have a structure that basically says majors are taught by people who are scholars, who have PhDs in particular fields. Um, so this is, you know, this, I think it, there's a kind of disconnect here. So at one of the things we're doing uh, at the new university is we're not gonna have traditional departments or majors. Um, we're creating what we call centers for academic inquiry, which are fluid interdisciplinary centers that are gonna bring together both the sort of thinkers and the doers, the scholars and the practitioners and be very project-based and project-oriented. So we have a, uh, I mentioned before, a center for politics, economics, and applied history. Um, our students are gonna be taught both by people who have studied these subjects deeply, who are learned, who have written books, but also people who have, you know, worked for the Federal Reserve or opened their own business, you know, or have been, you know, uh, tech entrepreneurs. And we're going to make sure that in these centers, those doers are actually doing things with the thinkers, that they're creating projects together. And then rather than have a major, students will become junior fellows in one of these centers, and they themselves will be engaged actively in the kind of learning um, this kind of, you know, this sort of applied learning uh, in the fields that they have. So that what they're really learning is not, you know, kind of how to check a bunch of boxes for a series of classes, but they're learning by example and through participation, how to get things in the world done. But before that, and this is critical for us um, at, at UATX, before they qualify to become a junior fellow, the first two years of the undergraduate degree are dedicated to what we call the Intellectual Foundations Program. That means they're gonna spend two years together as a cohort, all the students will be studying the same books, ideas at the same time, exploring the great human questions in philosophy, literature, mathematics, music, the hard sciences, and thinking about the solutions that have been posed to those questions throughout human history. So the idea is that you have to ground young people in a kind of uh, in an intellectual tradition um, that's wrestled with the very things that we continue to wrestle with as human beings. You know, what is justice? You know, uh, what is wisdom? You know, these sorts of things. After participating in a program like that for two years, then they're going to start thinking about becoming an engineer or becoming a political scientist or becoming a writer after they have that intellectual foundation. Wow, that's fantastic. And then the, the second two years is, you called it a Polaris project. Yeah. Yeah, the hinge point for us is um, after they complete the first two years, every student has to develop what we call their Polaris project, their North-South project. And the idea is that for the next two years as they complete their time as an undergraduate, they're going to have this moonshot project that they're going to be working towards, literally moonshot. Like we're going to ask them to dream up something that they – um, would would like to bring into the world that it would add value to the world. And it could be anything from, you know, de, de, sort of devising like a robotic delivery system uh, for vaccines for the next pandemic, or it could be like writing a symphony or, you know, creating a uh, micro schools for underserved communities in rural areas, things that would normally be beyond the ambition of a your average, average 20 year old. And they're going to spend the latter two years um, in their undergraduate experience, trying to solve for the problems that they've raised, trying to create the thing that they've proposed. We don't expect that they'll necessarily get there, but what they're gonna learn is how to learn, how to solve problems, how to 
find mentors, how to take classes, how to how to create the opportunities they need to learn the things that they need to learn. And maybe they might change their mind. And they might zig or zag across the course of this Polaris project. But at the end of two years, their work, which won't be complete, but their final project will be reporting back what they've learned in two years. So what we're trying to do is, the way I like to think of it is, we're gonna graduate students who don't have a degree um, in a particular major. It's more like your smartphone with a whole bunch of apps on there. What apps do they need to acquire their own sort of, you know, in, in their own experience, their own skills that will help them solve the problems they think need to be solved? That's fantastic. I mean, when you read about uh, some of what you're doing, it's always that you'll be fr fiercely independent. And you've kind of discussed that financially with Ed, you know, the new model, maybe guaranteeing the students uh, a wage and intellectually with your innovative curriculum. I love how you're breaking down the silos of the departments, you know, and all of that. Politically, freedom of inquiry. What, what, what are you, what's your thinking there? Is it going to be kind of like the University of Chicago's statement or is it going to be even broader than that? Um, we certainly adhere to the Chicago statement on academic freedom. I think it's a, you know, I think I'm, I'm a University of Chicago grad too. That's why I did my grad degree. So I, I feel like that is a wonderful consolidation of principles behind academic freedom. They also have the Calvin report that came out of the University of Chicago and uh, a few years after that, I'm sorry, a few years before that, um, that essentially made the case that institutions have to remain politically neutral, that they, institutions can't have um, can't take political stances, can't have ideological orientations. We adhere to that as well. Um, I mean, look, the, I don't think, I don't think there are very many people who would disagree that um, a primary problem we're having as a society today is a kind of binary political polarization, that, um, that we're sort of losing the ability to find common ground losing the ability to communicate across political differences and other differences. Um, and, you know, we're being pulled towards these polls. I mean, it's almost like centrifugal force at play here. And it's, and it's a problem. Universities need to be part of the solution. Universities are the natural resting ground for tolerance and, and pluralism because the primary virtue of a university is intellectual diversity. A university's operating system is intellectual diversity. Uh, so if you adhere to that, if you're if you're pursuing truth and you um, and you have the conviction that truth can only be pursued with the maximum number of ideas and opinions at play in the process, then you build an institution that has um, the widest range of opinion uh, represented, the widest range of experience. Other forms of diversity flow down from that. So you know. If a problem today is that universities lean too far in one political direction, the solution isn't to lean in the other direction, right? People complain that universities are too far on the left and that the, you know, the left has a kind of stranglehold on universities that may be true. This, if that's true, the, the solution isn't to create institutions on the right. The, the solution is to break through that binary create institutions that transcend politics. Politics should be studied at universities. Politics should not be the operating system of the university. And so that's our goal, is to make sure that we, we transcend the political divides that we have in the service of this thing called higher education. 
I often say that, um, you know, what we need to find is the highest common denominator, not the lowest common, the highest common. What are the highest things that we all have in common and start building from there? And I think one of those things is that we are truth seeking creatures. And so if we gather people together to seek truth in a, um, jointly uh, and in, 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 in sort of a, in an environment of trust and grace and that, um, we can, these, these, other, these other divisions that we have, I think will, will melt away over time. That's fantastic. I couldn't agree more about that, about not leaning the other way just to kind of balance it out, but breaking through it and creating something new. I, that's, that's incredible. Um, you talked to Ed about the, the faculty inquirers, inquiries you've been getting from disaffected people in their university. What about students? Have you, have you got inquiries about that? Like when is this, when can I start? We, uh, thousands, uh, I'll, I'll give you a kind of sense of the scale of, of interest from students. So when we started this project, you know, there were a whole bunch of adults that thought this is a great idea. Let's start a new university. Uh, but the project makes no sense if students don't think it's something that's needed or something that they would find themselves attracted to. Um, so we had our sort of proof of concept this last summer. We offered a summer program, which we called the Forbidden Courses uh, uh, for students from other universities, where we said, like, come to UATX and take courses that are really, really challenging in terms of their content uh, that, that will tackle, you know, vexing uh, questions that we have as a culture. And let's do this together and find ways to um, speak civilly and productively um, around these topics. And so we invited students um, to apply to this program, and we had, you know, some, you know, we had, you know, some really impressive faculty: Neil Ferguson and Ayan Hirsi Barry Weiss, and uh, Deirdre McCloskey, and, and many others. Um, we decided to keep the program small because it was the first time we're running it. So we had eighty spots over two weeks, and. Um, I wasn't sure what the response was going to be because we didn't have a marketing campaign. We just put it on our website. Said UATX is offering the forbidden courses. Here's the topics, and here's the people teaching. Uh, I was afraid not that many students would show up, and that it would be very embarrassing. Uh, within a few weeks of just announcing it on our website, we had forty-four thousand students reach out to us from across the world. Wow! Uh, all right, um, that is a very hopeful number for me. That's a number that signifies that the, the, um, the impulse to find ways to be civil to one another and to, to be truth-seeking together is deeply embedded in, in many, many, many young people, maybe most, maybe all. And that if presented with the opportunity to seek that kind of education, they're eager to do so. Um, I mean, when we ran the program, we had applications from you know, hundreds of universities from all across the world. Um, surprisingly to me, the vast majority of applications were from elite universities, which says something about elite universities. And the number one school for applications was Stanford, all of Harvard. We had applications from the Sorbonne, from Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, all over the world. And so this made me hopeful that there are young people out there who are courageous, who want to... Um, ask difficult questions, but who want, to, who want to do this in an environment that can actually be not contentious, but productive. Um, so, you know, there's a certain, um, 
hopefulness that that for me derives out of like learning that 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 project that we're undertaking is appealing to so many young people. Wow, that's fantastic and great news. Well, Pano, thank you so much for doing this. This has been an honor. Best wishes. I I just think you guys are going to just do amazing. I really do. I got a really good feeling about this. This is awesome. It's wow, just thank been, you so much. Uh, it's been tremendous to be able to t chat with you about it. It's really exciting. Great pleasure to chat to both of you. Thanks for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, I look forward to future conversations as we move forward and we can talk more about how things develop. Excellent. We'd love to have you back. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email, email to asktsoe at bearsage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now you know that for $5 you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. As the great one Jackie Gleason said as Ralph Cramden, Hamana, 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 Hamana. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, gobsmacked, I guess, would be the word. Gobsmacked. That's what I am, Ron. Gobsmacked. Yeah, me too. Me too. Everything I've been reading about this and hearing about it, and every time I hear Pano on a podcast, uh, it, it's just, it's inspiring. And there's so many parallels, Ed, between what they're doing at the university level and, you know, a business model change in a business. I mean, you have to rethink everything. Mm -hmm. Everything changes. Nothing's sacred. You, you can't. Oh, but what about the? You, no, you got to think about everything differently. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, it's a clean slate, and that's what I love about it. 
Well, and we were talking yeah. talking yeah, on what? the break that if they pull off that insurance thing and insure, insure the student's tuition, all of the big ones are going to have to fall in on that. But even some of the smaller schools will have to do it ultimately, eventually, because it'll get pushed down into the system that, right. that co college is guaranteed in some way. This is the exact same way. Here's the, here would be, would be my, my uh, analogy. The exact same way that when Uber as an app was introduced and gave us the countdown and said that, you know, your driver's going to be here in four minutes and three minutes and two minutes, that it filtered all the way down to the subway systems of the world that now had to put up tote boards that said next train in four minutes, three minutes, two minutes. Because that's the, the, the type of innovation that, that does that, that diffuses quickly once it's out. And not only quickly, but vastly, a, a, a broad net is cast with an innovation like that. Yeah, I mean, down to your pizza app on Domino's, right? Where right. Where your pizza is. Where your pizza uh, is in the process, yep. And, and I think this is the same reason we get excited about subscription because subscription just punctures a hole in everything. The silos, the departments in the university, the silos in a business, it's all gone when you put that relationship at the center. And I really wanted to ask them um, how they plan to, you know, stay in touch with the student once they graduate. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the, you know, this is where I think subscribing to a university has got so much appeal mm -hmm. because then it's just, you're taking them beyond that. And why couldn't you start subscribing when you were born mm -hmm. as a way to pay for the tuition? I mean, I, I think there's so many opportunities there, Ed, that our, our mind can't even process it. Well, I mean, in, in a way, it, what's that, the, the, the thing that you can do? I know it, we do it in Texas, the 509 program. Yes. I don't know if they have that where effectively yep, yep, you're putting yep, yep. money away. It's which, federal. Fed, yeah, it's like, federal, yep, right? Yeah. Same state. kind of thing. But instead of go, going through the government, you're going through an institution uh, or maybe a group of institutions, you know, similar to, okay, well, any one of these colleges that you can go to based on that, you know, based on your level uh, whenever you graduate, <laughs> right. you know. And I just yeah. love the the uh, the way they're splitting up the undergrad experience. You know, the first two years is that intellectual foundation, and then the next two years is that Polaris project that he talks about. I mean, could you imagine if you wanted to write a book or mm -hmm. you know create a computer program or whatever it is? I mean, that's the time to do it. You're young. You're you you've got no baggage of what can't mm -hmm. be done, and no, you can't think that way. And no, that's where we get the innovation. No, no. This is one of those things, Ron, that gives me what I, what I, what I call future glee. Yeah. Yeah. This is exactly what we talk about with business model innovation and how critical it is. And, and not in a negative way, but how creatively destructive it is. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, we Potentially, all focus, yeah. everybody focuses on the destruction, but I, I get glee over the creativity. Uh-huh. Well, but Again, back to gobsmacked. It's eighty slots, forty-four thousand applicants. I, I, I just, <laughs> and I also wanted to ask him what, you know, it's probably way too early. Who knows if they've even talked about it? But I bet they have. But do they plan to do anything virtually, like open up, you know, like a virtual online for like people in other countries or whatever um, that could be yeah. able to access this. Yeah, I mean, I think what he what he said is no. He wants he he wants it face to face, belly he to does. belly, as yep. they say, to to, yep. to to have that in place. And I and I think that's that's 
probably the That's right probably move, where at least to starting. get started. You yeah. know? I did want to ask him, I didn't get a chance to ask him about what is going to be different from the great books curriculum that he had at St. John's College. St. John's. And, and it sounds like it's going to be incorporated in, to a certain extent into that first two-year hmm. journey. Um, which, by the way, I, and, and, I, and I just became aware of this listening to a, another another podcast. I don't think it was related to UATX, but uh, Princeton still has their core, what I mm. think they call their core curriculum in place, despite the fact that it's there's been a lot of pressure to break it down and, and yeah. undo it. They don't yep. call it Western Civ anymore. That was their, right, right. they, their kind right. of cater <laughs> to that. Ho, but, yeah, ho, ho, Western Civ's got to go. Yeah, yeah. The chant from Stanford. Yeah. I think it, I don't know if it's Princeton, Ed, but, and maybe they have it too, but Columbia still has their great books program. Columbia. Oh, maybe it's Columbia I was thinking about. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yep. that, uh, when I heard that, that blew my mind. Right. That blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah, maybe I had that wrong. I, I think you're right. I think it was Columbia that, that you know, that, that insisted on that. Yep. Which, you know, I think it's great. I, I You know, I had, I had a core curriculum when I went to, to school. It was, yeah. it was, you know, there was certain things that you had to take. You had to take, sure, sure. The first two years, yeah, your science and history and and all that. Yep. You know, and as a liberal studies major, I wholly endorse this this model because that's basically what I did. I also well, thought know, that statistic about seventy percent of people degree is not what they end up doing in life. Right, seventy percent of do not do pursue something in their in in the, their field of study. In their field of study, right, right. Um, and you know, I, I've read not I've read conflicting things, not about that, mm-hmm. but about you know how do you train somebody for a job that doesn't exist? And there's a lot of debate in the literature about you know how do we count jobs that weren't here ten years ago, twenty years ago? Because mm-hmm. a lot of jobs are still the same, and we've talked about this before. But obviously, podcasting, you know, right, would not be something you would have talked about twenty years ago or whatever. So, or mm-hmm. a social media uh, right. position like Greg or whatever. Um, yeah, so it's just it's phenomenal. I just loved it. <laughs> this is so exciting. It makes me want to go back to school, Ed. No kidding. Right, I, I loved least... what he and and you know the thing that really struck me his measure of success, mm-hmm. how many competitors we have. Yep, I love it. <laughs> I, that that is so true. And if if you look at if you look at like Verisage, how many people are out there imitating it mm-hmm. with price consulting education? Yep. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about the think tank idea, but the whole you know just price. How many price consultants have we generated? been a ton but yep no nope, absolutely and and we welcome it well ron we are we have got to finish up here and and wrap up and start our bonus episode which for those of you is available on our patreon channel so visit patreon.com slash tsoe to join that but ron what do we got coming up next week next week ed if i'm not mistaken we have reza hood who's going to talk to us about his subscription business model pivot yep huda yep h-o-o-d-a oh so it's huda it's- Oh, yep, Rezo yep, Huda. Yep, yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. He is going to talk about his pivot to subscription. So I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, deliver, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. 
And also, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to askbsoe at barrisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Talk to you next week.